and welcome to Lost in Science for another week. Thank you for joining us. My name is Claire and this week on the show we have a very special guest in the studio. Is that right, Chris? Yes, we have Dr. Gregory Crocetti, who is a biologist from the Art Science Collective, the Scale Free Network. They often write books and graphic novels and this kind of stuff about microbes. Yes, of course. I remember Greg's amazing graphic novel from a couple of years ago. The Invisible War? The Invisible War! Yes, we got to give it some mention today because we're talking about a bacterial infection, but a serious kind of one that is affecting people in Pakistan at the moment. It is uh, typhoid fever that is extensively drug-resistant, which means that it is basically resistant to just about all the antibiotics. Not all, just about all the antibiotics. Nearly all the antibiotics. Yeah, so it's a pretty serious public health uh, crisis there in Pakistan. That sounds awful. Yeah, it's it's a good story, though. Um, We talk about uh, what's happening, how this comes about, and what can be done. Well, we will listen to that um, with great interest. Mm. Uh, And Stu, what do you have for us this week? Well, I was doing some reading and, you know, if you're concerned about maybe travelling to Pakistan now that you've heard that there's a typhoid epidemic over there, um, maybe my story will put you off travelling to Pakistan or anywhere else for that matter. So typhoid fever is not going to put you off travelling? Not, not, not a good enough reason. Okay. Not a good enough reason. Um, so I'm actually talking about how does global international travel affect the environment, in particular, how much of an impact does it have on total greenhouse gas emissions all over the world? And the answer is a lot more than we thought it did. So someone has actually crunched the data on this. Yes, they've spent um, a year and a half crunching the data and well, they've figured out that, yeah, there was a lot. there's a lot more greenhouse gas emissions attributable to international tourism. Well, in that case, um, unpack your suitcases and stick around for the next half hour. Um, on with the show. Okay, you are listening to Lost in Science. My name is Chris, and today I am talking to Dr. Gregory Crocetti from the Art Science Collective Scale Free Network, and we are here to talk about the the, la- the recent news of an epidemic of extensively drug-resistant typhoid in Pakistan. Hi, Chris. Uh, welcome to Lost in Science, Gregory. Thanks. Yes, good to have you here. Um, so, look, can you just, for those who have not been following the story, can you just uh, give us a bit of a rundown of what is this epidemic? What, what's going on? Uh, yeah, so one particular region of Pakistan, an uh, epidemic of typhoid has emerged. Um, researchers have used a combination of genomics and microbiology to pinpoint uh, the strain and why this strain is so nasty. And it, it, basically this, this particular strain of Salmonella typhi, um, full name Salmonella enterica, subspecies enterica, cerevar typhi, um, <laughs> it, it has an extraordinary uh, cocktail of uh, or weaponry, um, arsenal is the word I'm looking for, of uh, antimicrobial resistance genes. Okay, so hang on, let's, let's go back a second now. So this is typhoid fever, is that right? Yep. Uh, what is typhoid fever? Uh, typhoid fever, it, uh, it's a disease caused by Salmonella typhi or Salmonella paratyphi. Uh, that uh, takes uh, anywhere from one to three weeks to emerge. Uh, it will... First, it'll first emerge as a fever, and then it will 
present uh, basically the salmonella getting to your um, reticuloendothelial system and your lymphoid tissue, uh, basically your immune system. Okay. Um, uh, they get into your particularly like things like your macrophages and they start breeding. And within yeah, a week or two, you're starting to get this disease and it can result in a range of things like encephalitis, um, bronchitis, uh, a lot of bleeding from your gut. Uh, and so you just get sicker and sicker. You get more dehydrated. And unless you're treated with antibiotics, uh, you there's a one in one in five, sorry, one in a hundred to one in ten sort of chance that you might die. Okay, is this it the same? You said salmonella. Is it the same as the salmonella that people are familiar with in terms of food poisoning and that kind of stuff, or is this a different strain? Or no, the food poisoning salmonella is, uh, I believe, it's salmonella enteritidis, um, and that's a that will just breed in your. They'll multiply in your small intestine if you don't handle your food properly, uh, and over the period of sort of half a day to two days, and give you cramps, vomiting, diarrhea, uh, and usually just wash itself away, clear itself away. Okay. Now, so this one, uh, which is a taxi immune system, it is, they're calling it extensively drug resistance. I'm, I'm sure we've all heard of superbugs, which, you know, what they commonly, people commonly call uh, bacteria that is resistant to antibiotics. What does extensively drug resistant mean? Yeah, so the salmonella... Um, the salmonella story is is really uh, like the paradigm of the sanitary era, um, where you know it's it's been endemic in the global south or, or the you know deindustrialized world, um, the developing world for 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 you know still to this day, um, um, in the global north with you know with 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 vaccinations, clean water, sanitation. We don't see it. Uh, we don't see epidemics of this um, uh, since the antibiotic era. So, nineteen forty-eight, um, the first of the we the first of the antibiotics we used against Salmonella was Cephalosporin, and it was really successful in killing Salmonella uh, typhi, uh, and that was working for a couple of decades. Uh, but then, in the nineteen seventies, resistance started to emerge. It was a big outbreak in Mexico, but the scientists had already started testing and basically had had, had amoxicillin and a trimethoprim cocktail ready to to bring in, and and it worked. And so then we were good for another couple of decades. Um, but then resistance to those developed. Uh, and th but then by the nineties, we had resistance to amoxicillin, ampicillin. Um, and then by the change, the turn of the millennium, there's resistance to ciprofloxacin, fluoroquinolones, and we were basically left with cephalosporin. And these are the frontline antibiotics. Right. So these okay. are oral antibiotics that are fairly affordable and fairly, you know, able to be used across the world. Okay. These are the kind of things that if you went to, you had an infection now and you went to the, to the GP, they might give you these. Yeah, absolutely. This is right. what would be used all over the world. Um, but yeah, the, over the years, the the cost of producing some of these antibiotics has has risen, uh, and we're basically at a point now with this extensively drug resistant um, Salmonella typhi. It's resistant to all of the first line uh, antibiotics except one, azithromycin. So, and this is really what what the, you know what's what the warning here is is that. 
if we don't, if we're not really careful, the there's the dire can the dire conditions of this strain could spread globally, um, uh, into especially through the global south, um, uh, because after this front this frontline antibiotics, all that's left is uh, a, a handful of really expensive intravenous antibiotics that uh, that carry side effects. Um, and so it's the costs are prohibitively expensive for use in most parts of the world. Okay. Just just out of curiosity, so if this is called extensively drug resistant because it's resistant to just about everything, when it is actually resistant to everything, is there another name for it? Is it like is it like a extra level? I don't know. Maybe we'll call it total drug resistant TDR or something. I, don't, I, I, I honestly don't know. I don't know Let's if we're hope quite we don't there find yet. Out. Sorry? Let's hope we don't find out. Oh, God, yeah. Lost in Science. My name is Chris, and today I am talking to Dr. Gregory Crocetti. Now, the idea of, of bacteria becoming resistant to antibiotics, I suppose this is, I mean, it sounds like a fairly straightforward kind of example of evolution through natural selection, you know, survival of the fittest. Those that are resistant to the, the drugs supposed to kill them will obviously be the ones to survive. But it's more complicated than that, isn't it? They can be, they can get these traits in other ways. Yeah, yeah. I think, I think the, it's interesting. I mean, you, if you when you allude to Darwinian sort of um, evolutionary theory and survival of the fittest, it it, it notoriously uh, fails to talk about um, those theories have notoriously failed to talk about horizontal gene transfer, um, which is really what the the most important factor when it comes to antibiotic resistance and and antimicrobial resistance, because um, bacteria in particular are extremely promiscuous. Uh, at sharing genes and and uh, through through um, just picking them up randomly, but also through sex. How does how okay? I want to know how this works. And, and the particular idea of bacteria having sex, because you know we're talking about cross species sex, and also the just idea of picking them up as well. It's like are they just lying around. I mean, there's so many questions here. How does this work? Um, when uh, bacterium dies. Um, it will its entire it, it basically its um its membrane will will open most of the time and and its genome will become exposed to to the environment and to other microbes and so its DNA its genes are up for grabs um, uh, so that's one way is that just basically free DNA and so and bacteria that's called transformation bacteria can just pick up free DNA sometimes uh, uh, viruses can carry transduction can viruses can carry DNA from one microbe to another. But the thing that's that's clear here with this Salmonella typhi is uh, these massive plasmids. So plasmids are circularized DNA, small pieces of circularized DNA. Uh, in this case, it's quite a large piece of circular DNA uh, that 
bacteria uh, will often pass from one from from one to the other through conjugation um, and conjugal. You know, you, you, it infers that uh, sex. So basically. why would why would they be doing this? Like with like like I said, other species like. Well, yeah, the conjugation tends not to happen so much um, uh, from f between species, um, but plasmids, like like free DNA plasmids, can can float around in the environment and potentially be picked up, and and it's a good way of sort of carrying the entire arsenal of of uh, antibiotic resistance genes. Um, although in this case, actually, many of the antibiotic resistance genes are also on the genomes of these Salmonella typhi. So yeah, they're. There's resistance genes all over the place, which is probably going to make it hard to, to, to combat them into the future. Okay. You are listening to Lost in Science, and we are speaking to Dr. Gregory Crocetti about uh, antibiotic resistance, in particular, extensively drug-resistant typhoid uh, epidemic. Okay, so you said that a lot of the genes, the, um, the drug resistance genes are already in this particular strain of salmon, but where did it pick up the, the missing pieces, like the extra bits? Have they figured that out? Uh, where did they get them from? Yeah. Um, I'm not really sure. I, I, I guess the... the... Like I, said, so I saw one of their, their papers where they, they, one of their theories was they said they came from uh, E. coli. Yes, that's true. So the enterobacteria um, yep. include uh, E. coli, Salmonella, Shigella, um, Vibrio, they're so very what's, what's, closely related. So Vibrio cholera. Oh, it's it's the family of bacteria. Okay. Um, that family is there. They cause some of the worst diseases. So dysentery, Shigella causes dysentery. Vibrio cholera can cause cholera. Um, uh, those microbes have been um, transmitted through human populations for millennia. Um, fecal oral transmission. Um, they have a natural uh, reservoir in our gut, um, and 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 it's it's good not to say that it, it doesn't help to say that bacteria are bad or good, you know, exclusively bad or good. They they have a place in in, in us and around us, um, especially things like e, e. coli. It's hard to think of Salmonella and Shigella as good um, in any context, but um, uh, so we've been. Uh, we've been throwing, uh, the more we throw antibiotics at these these particular bacteria, the more that they can find or evolve resistance to these to these um, antibiotics. Uh, and that resistance is conferred through genes, um, and those genes will often get swapped and traded, especially in times of stress when you're, when you're targeting them. Okay. Um, and the tragedy with, with, um, with, the way we've used antibiotics over the years is that, especially in places like uh, South Asia, there's been suboptimal dosing. You know, try and save money by using half the concentration. Uh, but you can't think, I can't think of a better way of breeding antibiotic resistance, really, than, than using uh, ineffectively low doses. Oh, people. so you've got something that doesn't kill all the infection and yeah. gives them a chance yeah. to get to, stronger. To get stronger. Okay. Exactly. Now, I know that the sort of work that, that you guys do at the, the Scar Free Network, you, you write, produce books and artwork and this sort of stuff, a lot of about um, microbes and particularly the good microbes. Um, so, so, you, so a lot of them are good, but you're saying E. coli is also can be good? Oh, absolutely. E. coli has a, a natural place in our gut. Um, it, it's, only the very, it's only very occasionally that a strain can turn around and uh, can cause disease. 
um, but they they generally do have a, a, a role in our gut. I think they make um, vitamin K and uh, one of the B vitamins. Okay. Um, you know, from from parts from nutrients in our food. So, so most um, of the stuff that lives in our gut is our friends. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And I mean, that is that is a message that is always worth repeating: is that you know, ninety nine point nine 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 nine. I could continue. Percent of microbes on Earth are good for us, uh, and you know, we have misused anti. This is absolutely about our misuse of antibiotics and our misunderstanding of these microbes um, that that is causing this problem. Mm-hmm. We've caused this problem for ourselves. But on the other hand, uh, life before antibiotics was there's many more infections and we're possibly facing that again in the future. So um, what can we do in this situation? What can we do when we're facing this kind of uh, multiple drug resistant, extensively drug resistant infections? Well, with salmonella, typhi, with typhoid fever, the, the, the solution is pretty simple. Um, the, we need clean water. Everyone in the world, you know, should have clean water, access right. to clean water and sanitation. Because it's spread through, like, feces, isn't it? Yep. Yep. Okay. Yep. Yep. So, uh, you know, that's why in the global north, um, in places like Australia and, and Europe, and we don't have typhoid fever um, spreading around. You know, it might, a case or two might emerge, but it won't turn into an epidemic because we have good sanitation and hygiene in place. Um, and so... It, that's the concern here is really for, for Asia, South Asia in particular, Sub-Saharan Africa, that we'll see epidemics um, popping up uh, where they just don't have good sanitation. Okay. Uh, is vaccination a possibility with these kind of, as a preventive measure? Yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah, vaccination can definitely um, help protect from uh, Salmonella typhi. I don't think it works against Salmonella paratyphi. Uh, so if these genes, if this plasmid, yeah, if, if these resistance genes jump over to its cousin, uh, we we won't have a okay. vaccine against that. So that, that, I guess that, that sort of that sanitation and the vaccinations is like preventative measures. Uh, what about actually fighting infections when the antibiotics run out? What are our options? Is it new antibiotics? Are there alternatives? I'm not aware of any new antibiotics in the pipeline. Uh, as as I mentioned earlier, we. In in if you know if you if you if you have access to enough money you know if you live in a wealthy part of the world you'd probably go on some intravenous antibiotics and um, to treat uh, typhoid, um, but the 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 best hope well I mean one of the best hopes that's that's out there is is things like phage therapy we are trying different you know different approaches scientists are, f- are finally starting to really think about alternatives to antibiotics okay. because it doesn't look like no, no no new ones have really emerged uh in the last you know two or three decades and certainly the um the pharmaceutical industry hasn't hasn't funded that research that's not so it's not to say they're not out there but you know f- bacteriophage therapy using the viruses of bacteria to attack the bacteria so these are the bugs that prey on the bacteria you get them on our side essentially yeah exactly yeah. the the ancient proverb the enemy of my enemy is my friend yeah um these viruses absolutely can help us and and I'm not sure how effective they'd be against Salmonella, but uh, but m- there's hope. Yep. And this is something that you covered in your graphic novel, The Invisible War, I believe. Yeah, that, exactly. Yes. It was, and this is, I think, why maybe why I'm so interested in typhoid is, is that it, it really isn't Salmonella and Shigella are so so similar in that way, in that um, they have a really special relationship to crowded, stressful, and malnourished conditions. And war, uh, World War One, was was that condition with um, where Shigella dysentery uh, was just so prevalent, 
and killed as many people as as bombs and bullets, bullets and bombs in some parts of the war, like Gallipoli. Yeah. Um, and so we talk about the discovery of bacteriophage uh, and the emergence of it in this particular nurse's gut uh, that can kill off this shigella and saves their life. Spoiler alert. <laughs> well, that's it's happy ending. We like that. Okay, where yeah. can people find out more about your your books and your work and this sort of thing? Uh, probably the best place to go is scalefreenetwork.com.au. Okay, to our website. Brilliant. We might put a link up that on our podcast page. Well, thank you for coming in, uh, Gregory. Always good to talk to you. Thanks for having me. Uh, that was Dr. Gregory Grichetti from the Scale Free Network. Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away If you can use some exotic booze There's a bar in far Bombay Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away Come fly with me, let's float down to Peru in Lama Land, there's a one-man band and he'll toot his flute for you. Come fly with me, let's take off in the blue. Once I get you up there, where the air is rarefied, we'll just fly starry-eyed. Once I get you up there, I'll be holding you so near, you may hear angels cheer, cause we're together, weather-wise it's such a lovely day, just say the words and we'll beat the birds down to Acapulco Bay. I'm probably showing my age, but when I was a kid in the 1980s, people going overseas for holidays was something of a rarity. Uh, I, I remember another kid from school went to Disneyland, and it might as well have been a trip to the moon as far as I was concerned. Totally. I mean, kids came back from the States, and it was like they were a year and a half ahead of us. They mm. were just like, they're just like, look, all this cool stuff that the States has. Yeah. We're, we're going to get it in a year and a half. Yeah, they've got they've got this thing called the internet. No, yeah. no, not, not <laughs> in the 80s. Um, although it did exist in some degree. But... Uh, so since the 1970s, international travel has become far more commonplace, particularly with the cost of air travel itself becoming much cheaper in the last couple of decades. Um, of course, the airlines are tricking people into paying more to choose their own seats and their own, you know, book more luggage and stuff like that. But the actual cost of the tickets are lower anyway. So economy flights are about half the price or less of what they were 30 years ago in equivalent dollars. So including inflation, they're wow. still half or a third of the price in some cases of what they used to cost. And the number of flights me measured in passenger miles has increased about 5% a year since the early 1970s. So there's basically hundreds of thousands more flights per year than there used to be. Um, so pretty much it's within everyone's reach, more or less, to fly these days and overseas trips are commonplace for most people in Australia. So if you don't travel overseas yourself every year, you probably know someone who does. 
and more people have been overseas at least once than in the 1980s and even in the 1990s. So the number of people who travel overseas as a matter of course is going up all the time. So with this increase in global tourism, what's the impact on the planet? So for some years, there were concerns about depositing carbon emissions directly in the upper atmosphere because they thought that maybe that had some effect and it was concentrating the effect of those greenhouse gas emissions. That's actually not really an issue. People realised, oh, well, the atmosphere's churning around so much that it, uh, it, you know, it gets mixed up. So it's, there's nothing really being deposited. So it's just swirling all around the place. Good. So, good, good to know. Um, yeah, so the the danger of that deposition had been shown to be less worrying than people originally thought. But even in 2008, the World Trade, Trade Organization had an estimate of the greenhouse gas emissions of global tourism as a, as a industry sector, and that figure was around 3%. So they thought that about 3% of the total emissions in the world were as a result of global tourism. But just recently, a team including researchers from the University of Sydney have analysed the real footprint of international travel and found it's much higher than anyone thought before. Um, So the analysis looked at around a billion supply chains to fully capture the real impact of tourism over 160 different countries. So they didn't look at every country in the world, but 160 is a fairly good number. Uh, And they found the true figure is around... Four and a half billion metric tons, or about eight percent of global emissions. So they found that richer countries account for a greater contribution to this figure, but countries with rapidly growing middle classes like China and India and Brazil are also big influences on the figure. And disturbingly, there seems to be no upper limit. So basically, people travel as much as they can afford to travel, and it doesn't plateau at any point. They that the more money they have, the more they travel. So it just keeps going up. The richer the country gets, the more people travel. And the you know as soon as people get above a certain level of income, they start traveling and keep increasing as it goes. Can, can I ask a question? Um, what, what sort of things were included in um, this sort of like global travel? Like it's not just transport, is it? No. So they obviously looked at transport. It's a big part of the total and air travel plays a part, but also road and rail transport once they reach their destination. Yeah. And also food supply chains have a big right. impact. Okay. Um, so obviously things like accommodation of food are things that people need regardless of where they are in the yeah. world. So you're eating and sleeping places whether you're overseas or whether you're at home. And while you're yeah, at home... Yeah, don't they, don't they cancel one another, right? They do, except that people eat fancier food uh-huh. and live a fancier lifestyle they probably, while they're on holidays. They probably end up eating more, more protein. Certainly. Yeah, and, <clears throat> and the population movement puts pressure on local food systems and prices for local people too. So when there's more people there, then the food gets more expensive for the people who live there all the time. So it's a bit of an issue to be concerned with. But the authors of the paper, which was published in Nature Climate Change, have suggested that carbon taxes or carbon trading is possibly the only way to curb the growth of international tourism, which is growing at a faster rate than other industry sectors and is apparently immune to economic pressure. So it basically is growing faster than international trade is growing as a sector. So um, they're basically saying that 
It doesn't get impacted by economic downturns. It's basically a, you know, a global effect of that as people get more money, they travel more and the sector just keeps growing year to year, regardless of what else is going on. Uh, and it's, yeah, it's one of the fastest growing uh, economic sectors on the planet. So the authors also do suggest that traveling more slowly, as in avoiding air travel, uh, wherever possible, and paying more for carbon offsets are ways that people can potentially have a direct impact on the total footprint of their next international holiday. Come to the end of another episode of Lost in Science on the Community Radio Network. Thanks for joining us. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at lostinsci at gmail.com or you can leave a comment on our blog, which is lostinscience.wordpress.com. And we're also on Facebook and Twitter if you want to look for us there. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If that's not enough information, you can tune in again next week when Chris and Stuart get... Lost in Science!